Today is January 20th, 2022. Welcome to The Regimen, where public health pharmacists, pharmacy students, and their guests discuss the latest public health issues relevant to all healthcare providers, their patients, and policymakers. Listen to find out how pharmacists and pharmacy students like me can improve population health, health equity, and patient care through advocacy and education. My name is Anisha Bhatia, and I'm a pharmacy student in my last year at the University of Rhode Island, working with the Rhode Island Department of Health alongside my professor, Dr. Bradberg. I'm Jeff Bradberg. I'm a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the URI College of Pharmacy and the Academic Collaborations Officer at the Rhode Island Department of Health. Today, we have a guest joining us, Dr. Chris Federico, who is the Rhode Island Pharmacist Association President and a 2010 University of Rhode Island graduate. Thanks for having me, and Anisha, uh, feel free to call me Chris. Let's start with the topic that I'm sure everyone wants to hear about, Omicron. Regarding the Omicron variant, in some states like New York, New Jersey, even Rhode Island, cases have peaked, and there's now a sudden decline. What does this mean for the future? A lot of the population might be immune to it now, and they already have had the, the infection. Is there a good chance that there might be a new variant we have to worry about, Chris? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Anisha. I think as we've been thinking about this over the past you know, 18 months, two years, we've seen an evolution of the, of the virus. And so we do have to keep you know, informed in terms of what the transmissibility is, the severity of each new variant that likely can, uh, that can come out. So we do see that you know, as we came into Delta over the fall, um, there was actually an increase in severity of the disease. And so with Omicron, we see the transmissibility is much higher. I think what we have to really keep in mind is that the treatment uh, moving forward and the testing strategy. So certainly as we move into the colder months, the virus uh, will mutate. I think that's something that we know. It is a coronavirus. So much like colds that we, uh, that we experience every year, they will evolve and they can occur and have breakthrough cases, even with the vaccine. So we certainly should be keeping an eye on that and, and certainly want to make sure that we stay in tune with our public health agencies and also, um, you know, the international organizations as well. Thank you, Chris. That is a great answer. I think everyone is confused with all the variants out there and we don't really know much about it yet. Dr. Bratberg, there's some people out there saying that a less life-threatening variant means that it's a good thing that we're moving forward this way. Do you think that when a new variant comes out, it'll follow this pattern? I think you said it uh, best, Anisha. We don't know a lot of about coronavirus. We know we, we have these variants. We don't have a very good uh, genomic strategy, right? Other countries, we found Omicron in particular in South Africa because they have a very good um, sequencing system. We don't have that in the US. I think it's coming kind of like a lot of the other interventions we're talking about. It's been two years. We're finally implementing them. I would say the response has been mixed. So we have to think about this sort of as a national policy. And I think, you know, these recent papers that came out in the Journal of the American Medical Association saying, you know, we're going to have to live with COVID. It's going to be here, right? Um, it's not like other epidemics like Zika virus or Ebola virus or things like that, or even influenza or RSV. Um, some of those viruses are respiratory and we can protect ourselves against them. And I think whether there's more or less life-threatening variants, um, realize that vaccination is absolutely the key period. Being infected with Delta didn't protect you against Omicron. Some data that just came out yesterday shows that people who were unvaccinated and got Delta protected them pretty well. But remember that protection from infection, you're always taking a risk for infection and especially unvaccinated people and especially unvaccinated people with Omicron, they are the ones getting hospitalized and they have 
the um, you know one thousand percent increased risk of death from Omicron or any other coronavirus variant. So besides vaccines, another preventable method is masking. And Dr. Bradberg, we have talked about masks before, which is one of the most effective ways. And wearing a mask gives you fifty three percent chance of not getting COVID. And this week, the CDC recommended use of higher quality masks and encouraged the general public to upgrade from cloth masks. So if you're wearing a cloth mask and someone who is infected is wearing a cloth mask, it can take about 25 minutes for the virus to transmit. Chris, I wanted to ask you this. If you're not a healthcare worker, where can you find an N95 mask? Yeah, it's a good question. And this has been coming up and you've seen on social media, a lot of sharing of, of positive resources, which is something that we don't always see with the misinformation being shared. But there is a good website that we can probably post on Twitter as well. Um, it's called projectn95.org. Um, that is a website that you can buy uh, KN95 masks and 95 masks and also for children. And so if you go on there, it, it varies in price, but you know, approximately about you know between $25 to $50, you can get about a box of 20 which is fairly reasonable. Um, you know, you certainly could go on places like Amazon and look for them. I think one thing you have to be careful is the ones that are counterfeit um, or they're less quality than they're um, advertised as. So I think in terms of looking for markings on it, N-I-O-S-H is a nice um, indicator that it is um, a good quality N95 or KN95 mask. So I would suggest that to start with. Um, other than that, we are seeing, um, it just was announced that about 400 million masks are gonna be distributed to each state or I mean, um, to the country. So we will be seeing that they will be distributed to uh, the states in the coming week or so. We haven't seen any firm plans in terms of where will they'll be distributed. It could be pharmacies, it could be federal health centers. Uh, I've seen things posted about libraries. So I think they're going to really try to mesh that between a pharmacy and also where the people actually go to congregate and have access. I did not know about that website, so I will have to report that back to all my family members. Yeah, it's 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 funny, you know, when you go on a bunch of these calls and as uh, Dr. Brapperg and I know, you know, you find a wealth of resources. So they've started to publish that in a variety of different medical um uh, you know, accounts. So it's been great to see. And I think it's really important. One thing I read just this morning is that uh, allegedly, and again, we sort of all alleged is that yes, it's going to be pharmacies. Yes, it's going to be federally qualified health centers. Um, we don't know which ones, probably the ones that are federally aligned as they were with vaccines, but you get three N95s and they're only adult N95s. So we still have the entire population of the US that's, you know, four years and under. And from two to four, you have to wear masks. They said that pediatric masks are coming, and, and I, I really feel for folks who, um, you know, want to protect their unvaccinated kids. My friend's three-year-old is infected with COVID and is forcing her to stay home for 10 days, and uh, and the close contact is her older brother who's vaccinated. He has to stay home for 10 days. So really masking, I think, again, from a sort of endemic respiratory virus approach, masking, high-quality masking, um, I laugh because I found a, a beard chart on the CDC. We could put that in the show notes. That means that, and I knew this as an ID professor or an ID uh, specialist at a hospital, you didn't, you can't wear beards. You can't have beards and, and wear an N95 mask to be fitted, but I still wear an N95 when I teach spin and I teach class. Um, and even though it isn't fitted as well, um, I think that's, I think, you know, the one thing is they're not saying like, get all these masks and then get fitted, right? but you still have to somehow have access to a pharmacy or to a federally qualified health center 
And we're all people who are very privileged to know what's going on. The people who don't know what's going on are still going to be wearing cloth masks, I think, from an access. And I think, and I think it'll be interesting because we did see with the testing, uh, the, the testing release yesterday and the, and the subsequent day that, you know, it's funny, we do think that people aren't savvy enough sometimes or are concerned about that. But, you know, I think as a, you know, I, I heard about it actually secondhand from my mom and other people, you know, that knew the website prior to even myself. So I think the message is getting out. So hopefully there's a, a solid plan in place. Chris, you mentioned that the government is going to be shipping out for 400 million masks. How is that going to work logistically? Where can the general public expect to pick up the masks? Is it going to be at pharmacies? Are they going to be shipped to their houses? So I I don't know. Uh, I think the one thing that we are seeing right now is that they're anticipating to be at pharmacies, um, like Jeff said before, the uh, federally qualified health centers. Um, I think, again, I think they're going to be meeting people where they are likely to go and make the access as easy as possible. I think you have to worry about other things such as, you know, shelters and homeless uh, people and other things that they may not have the same type of access that we normally uh, that we do that we're talking about right now. Uh, You know, also hospitals, I'm sure that will be distributed. Uh, You know, Jeff and I have worked, um, you know, many of these volunteer clinics doing either testing or vaccination. And a lot of times they have those masks available at those sites as well. So when people are going to get a a vaccine or a booster, um, I think that will also be an important access uh, as well. One thing that did happen uh, during uh, earlier in the pandemic is that, you know, when you went to a testing facility, they actually uh, at the beginning were trying to get rid of some of the stockpiles. So they were actually offering KN95 masks to people that came and got tested. So that is another area you could look for when you go to get tested. And to segue right into testing, the government just released their website of giving four tests to every household, which I think is great because we rely on self-antigen tests when we're symptomatic to make sure that we are positive or negative. And they also just newly authorized two tests from Roche and Siemens Healthineers to detect Omicron. So when it comes to detecting Omicron, it the tests might have reduced sensitivity and we still need more data on how well they do it. So our suggestion is that if an antigen test comes back negative, but the person is symptomatic, then they are probably positive and should confirm with a PCR test. But we've been seeing some news on saliva testing for Omicron. So Dr. Brapper, could you explain how saliva testing works? Yeah, it's great to revisit this. I think uh, almost every um, podcast I did Facebook Live with with uh, Matt LaCroix and, and Chris Federico here, uh, we, I talked about how, you know, the testing is going to save us. I still believe it. And uh, along with vaccination and, and, and changing your behavior and masking, all those things are all part of the comprehensive effort here to um, return to some sort of post-pandemic endemic normalcy. And I'd always say, you know, I, I just want to spit in a cup and I want everyone to do that. And then I can go to a concert um, and wear a mask. You know, I went to one event in the last two years, I was masked, she had to show my vaccination, ridiculous piece of paper card. It's also a solution that we need to fix data <laughs> management there. But um, yeah, so Omicron, it's thought that it's in higher concentrations in the throat. I will say there's no advice to take those tests that are only approved for nasal use and swab your throat. That's been out there. People believe social media is for some people, a lot of people, it's their main source of info. Don't do that. However, there is small published data 
small sample published data that um, there is a delay in positivity. Um, my son and my partner are both positive for COVID. My son's over his isolation period back at school. Now my daughter's uh, sick and she's tested negative yesterday, but she's got a sore throat and a fever. By definition, being in school, being in our household, she has COVID. I'm not going to take her for a PCR test. We'll probably test her today. But I think that there is some difference between Delta and Omicron, that there is a delay in those rapid tests. And again, it's all about behavior change is the first thing that we should embrace in the future or the current, which is if you're sick, don't go to school, don't go to work. So if saliva tests uh, are equivalent, and, and one preprint did show that saliva testing was equivalent to nasal for Omicron, uh, that needs to be peer reviewed. I think it's great. I mean, I guess my only thought, and Anisha and I talked about this earlier, is self-swabbing your nose is a little different than spitting in a cup, right? Is that spreading more virus if you're infected because you're, you are you have to expel this into a cup and particles staying in your nose? I mean, that's, 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 a, that's a hard thing. Um, so, I mean, I, I love every possible way to do testing. I don't believe in antibody testing. That is something that we should, that I'm very, very clear on that that has no impact on, should have no impact on your behavior. But but saliva testing is an interesting thing. Rutgers University, which I live right near there, they've been doing saliva testing since almost the beginning of the pandemic. And it has been extremely successful, but we have been doing nasal swabbing at most other places for so long. So Chris, do you think that testing sites might switch over to saliva testing eventually? And if it is something that's seen as effective, do you think they would react well to it? Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about this this morning when, when you wrote up the script about this. And, and I think what we have to do is educate people. So everyone's been used to doing a nasal swab for the past two years or a year and a half. And so I think we need to make sure that people understand a how to do it. I, I think it is a good option because, you know, if you ever go to a testing site and you've seen families and children deal with doing the nasal swabs is you can see some people really struggle through it. Um, I think yeah. we all remember early on doing the PCR when it went all the way into the back of, of your nasal cavity. I think that was very unpleasant. Um, now we have the interior nasal swabs, which is much better. Um, so I think, you know, it, it you know, is it going to be, is it going to replace it? I don't know. Is it going to be an option? I think it will. Um, and, and Jeff has always been very adamant about being able to spit in a cup to be able to go into a concert uh, for the past year and a half. So he's very consistent with that approach. And I think we have to meet people, right? So if someone that's their one barrier, we have to open that up for, um, uh, for them to do it. Uh, one thing when you talked about the differences between the nasal swab and the, and the, and using, hearing a lot of chatter online and stuff about swabbing your throat and, and that's more accurate, kind of what you alluded to before. One thing that we have to make sure we do continue to tell people is that with the currently approved, uh, you know, swabs that we have for antigen testing is not indicated based on the EUAs for that or approvals. Interesting anecdote, when I was in Germany to run in the Berlin Marathon, they actually did a sample of both. They actually did your nasal, your nasal um, uh, sample, then also a throat culture as well. It's just kind of interesting how this has evolved over the past uh, year. So I think it will happen. I think we need to teach people how to spit maybe to a cup and so they're not opening up and you know really expelling a lot of the virus especially if they're symptomatic so maybe you segregate it in, ter in terms of saying hey 
if you're infectious, you do it one way. If you're asymptomatic, you do another way. And maybe you can triage it a little bit better. That was going to be my next question is if when we do nasal swab testing, we ask the patient to just pull down their mask under their nose. Now they're exposing their whole face. Is that, does that put the testers or the people around them at increased risk of catching the virus? I think that that was a great explanation. Well, and, and again, you did testing for our mutual colleague, uh, Dr. Fernandez Eugenio, and you know you had a face mask, you were given an N95, all those things are there. Yeah. I mean, again, if you're at home, you can spit in a cup, right? But yeah, if I'm lining up and pulling my mask down to do that, just like the one time I went through the airport, you're pulling your mask off, or I think I've said this before, my daughter says, wait a second, we have to wear masks and be six feet apart from each other outside, but we're taking our masks off and sitting next to each other to eat, you know, to eat together. You know, these, these are the rules that confuse people to say, you're supposed to be masked all the time. We have this virus that is as infectious as measles, which means, or more, which means that somebody could be in the bathroom at that restaurant, have COVID, take off their mask because they're in the bathroom. I don't know, you know, and yeah. if they breathe those particles, they stay in the air for two hours. And so then if you go into the bathroom where you, where nobody's there and you want to take your mask off, like we all do probably greater desire to do that for tight fitting N95s, you're going to breathe in that air and you've lost, right? So you're, you know, you've lost that, that barrier. A really good uh, inquiry there, Anisha, on, on the role of, of testing, even, and again, you were talking about Rutgers being a drive-through testing too. So they aren't like in the pharmacy, but Right. Um, yeah, have to have to think about these things. Maybe it's just more open air testing, you know, when you do the saliva test, testing, and then you just do it that way. So less exposure. Well, and I think you bring up a good point, too. I, I, I as you were talking about, you know, the different styles in, in Germany, and where again, you get tests for a dollar, and they send you tests. And you know, it's a different kind of perspective, we're getting there now with the Biden administration's billion tests that will be available. I think it's interesting. I've taken about five different at-home tests and they all have a different, you know, is this the one where you swab five times in each nostril or is it 15 times? And then do you squeeze the thing for 15 minutes? And I speak pretty good English and I can read English and I have time to do the testing. I think about how difficult these tests are relative to people who are in the greatest need and in the greatest exposure and have the greatest risk of side effects from uh, from COVID infection. We need to simplify the tests, period. And now the government is purchasing half a billion rapid COVID tests to distribute to the public. So like I said before, every household gets four free tests. You can order them online. And they're also setting up a helpline for people that don't have access to the internet, which is great. Um, so are going to be delivered seven to 12 business days from the order date. The administration is ensuring that the tests reach the hardest hit, highest risk communities. I think we have to tell the public these tests, we don't know when they're going to come in. So this is not for acute testing purposes, right? If you're symptomatic, don't wait for these tests, go out and get a PCR. It's to have at home when necessary. Were you both able to order tests for your household? So I was. Uh, I, I heard, you know, like I said before, I heard from friends and family members before I actually heard from Dr. Bratberg, uh, which is funny, mm -hmm. or even from some of our state executive uh, listservs that we received. So, you know, I think I found out around 2.30-ish or so, um, actually the day. So actually with this testing, these new tests that came out, it actually released a day early in what was uh, called a soft opening. So Many people actually came with, uh, became aware of the USPS website uh, to order the tests. So basically, if you go on there, there are some limitations. I think the one thing is the original website called covidtest.org. Uh, 
not only has uh, actually mapped you back to USPS to put in your address, but also has a lot of other resources in terms of how can you actually get tests beyond this, um, how to interpret the results, different things that I think are very educational and people should actually go to. If you go to the USPS um, link that was shared you know, on social media and on the news, I think the downside of that was that it actually gave people, allowed people to order it very quickly, but did not show the access and the resources that is on the other website as well. So um, I had no problem. I, I, I do know that, you know, I live in a multifamily house um, that I own and I actually rent. So luckily we are, um, we have two different numbers. However, for places that are in apartment complexes, I've been reading a lot of problems with some of these multi-unit, these multi-unit facility uh, facilities or apartment complexes where they're not able to get it. So there were suggestions of putting, you know, T1 or number 305 or whatever it is and making sure you put different language in there to ensure that you could actually uh, make sure that not only the address, but your, your specific unit was captured. So I think there are struggles that are occurring. Happy to hear what Jeff thinks. I agree. I mean, I have four people who live in my household. And so I ordered four tests, but I also ordered four tests for my two parents household in Minnesota um, and got delivered there. There are households in Central Falls, the population that we both vaccinated a lot, Chris, that uh, have 10 people in their household. So they're only getting four tests, right? So they, the government had to pick some number. They picked four. They didn't pick one. They didn't pick two. You've got, again, up to now a billion tests that will be available. You have to think about high-risk households, how many tests are going to be there. You know, you've got to, with government plans or programs, you have to think there's always going to be a certain percentage of corruption and then there's not sort of my philosophy on teaching students. There are students who cheat. They're the extreme minority. I don't want to make 99.9% of the class suffer to try to eliminate cheating, just as we should not say, hey, put how many people in your household? Anisha, you live with, do you have four people in your household? Now I have four people living in my apartment. Only one of you was able to order four tests? Correct. Right. Um, And you're on rotations. And so you may go to a different apartment and be able to order four more there. Um, and you're working in healthcare and, you know, we'll do inpatient uh, types of things where you'll have testing available at the hospital uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, setting that you're in there or pharmacy setting. So it's just, I think what's interesting is you don't think about healthcare access and language access. Anisha and I were looking at that USPS website, Chris, and it was interesting, of course, in tiny print and written at a very high level of literacy, but sort of saying, if you're an immigrant, we don't share this information. We don't do these things. I don't care because I don't, you know, I'm just a, a citizen hanging out. I don't need to worry about where my information goes. But people who are worried about that would have a problem. Now, with that said, you started the segment, Chris, by saying this is a very positive development. We have to say this is good. Lots of people are talking about how to improve it. I think we will see improvements as uh, as one of our favorite bloggers, uh, your local epidemiologist that Anisha and I like and we should highlight, uh, says this is an easy form, right? Is the is not doing your taxes. It is going in, putting in your address. In seven to 12 days, you're going to get these tests. So that's, I think we have to applaud the government for that. The mass set site, I'm actually pretty excited that we'll be able to have an easy site to get N95 mass, to eventually get pediatric mass and, and do those types of things. But I know that there are more complex forms. I was just going to ask you about that. Now insurers are required to reimburse their members for COVID-19 tests when they buy them at the pharmacy. Have you seen the Blue Cross form that they have to fill out for reimbursement? It's almost like 
why am I even asking to get reimbursed for this? It's going to take so much time and they have to send it in the mail. I mean, we're in 2022. Why do I have to mail something back? Do it to an insurer who can instantly process your, and again, to be clear, this there's Blue Cross is different in each state. This is Blue Cross for the federal government that was, we saw a post on, on, on Twitter showing how complex this form was, which I find interesting because designing a form as somebody who's designed lots of, lots of forms to use. Uh, is is much harder than doing an electronic form. So it's mm-hmm. there, even the creation of the form seems like that. And it, some of my students used to do prior authorizations. I don't know, Chris. I know you. I know you did prior authorizations in a previous career. I don't know, and how difficult and maddening that is um, for medications for patients. It seemed exactly like that form to say, "Go through this hurdle. We're going to ration a reimbursement for tests." Um, by only selecting people who have the time and energy and knowledge and literacy and English speaking language to be able to fill out this form to get reimbursed instead of call this number, press one or text us with your number. You know, you know like there's there's so many other simple systems that we use uh, to get access to information um, and can be secure. We really need to augment those things. Right. I always think about too, like, why do we have a car registration that's not on the phone? You know, you get pulled over, you can get a ticket for it. Why don't we have that all digital, right? I think we're, I mean, we now have the app for the vaccine card here in Rhode Island. We have 401 Health. So I think you're, it's making changes, but things take time and we have to kind of be respectful of that and consider it. And the, again, I, I just want to go back to this, the, the series of um, uh, COVID advisors who, who left in, in January and published these, these three talks on sort of where therapeutics will go. We'll be talking about therapeutics and pharmacists in a future podcast but also about vaccines, which we're going to talk about now and masking and testing. And, and really, again, emphasize all these things, equitable testing, equitable masks, sending things out to people's addresses. But one of their overriding concerns was, was data. Only one or two states actually shows the difference between case rates among those who are unvaccinated, those who are fully vaccinated, which is two doses of an mRNA vaccine or one dose of J&J, or what's now being called up to date, which we all heard at the Board of Pharmacy meeting today, up to date, as defined by the CDC as boosted, which is just adding more complexity too, right? President Biden spoke yesterday and answered some questions about COVID and and somebody says, gee, why haven't you, I think the question was along the lines of why haven't you fired these people who are, you know, miscommunicating to the public? And he says, we're not miscommunicating, we're changing the science and the science is changing really fast. But that's still maddening, right? It takes forever to take a, a study and implement it into practice, just like it takes forever to say, hey, maybe all kids should wear masks or should wear uh, helmets when they're on their, you know, bicycles, which is what my kids do. But we all know, clearly, I did not wear a helmet when I rode my bike as a child. So it takes a while or, you know, smoking bans, those kinds of things take a long, long time. So it's just important our listeners know we are working at, to coin a phrase, warp speed in terms of how we're identifying these variants and, adju- and adjusting our, our processes and data collection processes to it. Yeah. And I think back to the reimbursement issue that we are having, Dr. Bradford, can you explain how reimbursement will work with Medicare patients? Yeah. So there was a previous program, again, people on Medicare, typically over 65, higher age is the greatest risk factor for severe consequences of COVID um, uh, and, and much more severe if you're unvaccinated, of course. Um, they had access to tests at, li- I think Chris talked about this too, libraries and federally qualified health centers and Medicare rural center, Medicare funded rural centers. And so they really re-emphasize that, but currently Medicare 
pure Medicare will not, re- and, and they'll pay for tests that are ordered by a physician, but they will not pay for these tests. So people on Medicare going to the pharmacy, we see those that population probably more frequently than other insured populations will not be able to get reimbursed. And, and Nish and I spent, what, 40 minutes or so reading the CMS, Centers for Medicare, Medicare Services sites, other sites, insurance sites. And it was really hard to find out about how Medicare is not reimbursing it or why they're not reimbursing it. And I think this is a huge problem. Why are we essentially gatekeeping tests from one of the populations that needs them the most and is at highest risk of developing other issues? So I think- Chris, do you know anything about this? Well, the one, so the one thing that I mentioned before about that COVID test.org, um, there is actually a link on there that goes to CMS and it says, and we can maybe post this later, but it says how to get your um, reimbursement essentially. And it goes through different steps and everything. And it talks about starting January 15th. Most people with a health plan can go online. Um, to your point, trying to remove barriers. Um, you know, there are some plans that do, and, you know, I don't know them off the top of my head, obviously, but if a person was able to call and find out reimbursement wise, um, you know, Again, another step in the process, which is unfortunate, but some plans will pay for it altogether. Um, some will reimburse you about $12, which I'm seeing pretty commonly for, uh, per test. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's something that is going to evolve as we've been continuing to talk about it before. But, uh, you know, again, it's they're trying to set up networks of different options for pharmacies and, uh, and, and patients to be able to access and get reimbursed. I think it's just going to take some time. And I think, again, we've talked about how how much this, this has evolved over the past couple of years. And I think, uh, unfortunately, it's kind of coming a little bit later in the process than we would have hoped. And we should, I, I think we should also uh, always talk about, uh, since this was a topic at the Board of Pharmacies about workload, all of these interventions that involve pharmacies, starting with testing, vaccinating, boosting, adolescence, pediatric, uh, different file sizes, all these changes are now taking place at in in what is often which is always the worst month of community pharmacy life because january 1st insurance companies change change coverage which is sometimes a shock to the patient and so now we have to deal with upset patients it's often the start of flu and cold season it's covid season right now hopefully declining i mean anisha you you work uh in a community pharmacy you know what do you what do you think about you know these great things that are happening and you know having tests sent to your house but especially the reimbursement piece or hearing that, oh, we're going to use pharmacies to distribute masks, which I know on a previous pod with Chris, we talked about that's exactly what South Korea did. They basically got free masks from every pharmacy. So you just kind of rolled in and got it and you left. That's still an interaction on top of all these other interventions. What, what do you think about that, the impact on workload for pharmacists? So I think it's great that we're able to provide access to tests and masking, but when you increase our workload, you have to increase our staff. I think that that's a big issue that we're seeing in the community pharmacy world right now is we just don't have the people to help out with all of these extra extra tasks that we're being given. I don't know if community pharmacists are going to love this extra step that they have to do during their shift. And you had a, actually, you told a story about somebody looking for a test, right? That couldn't get reimbursed. Yeah. So she came to the counter with four tests and said, Blue Cross told me that I can get these tests for free at the pharmacy. Me and my pharmacist kind of just looked at each other and we're just like, 
she's not wrong, but we just haven't implemented a process yet to make that happen. We had to just, you know, sell them to her and say, keep the receipt and submit it for reimbursement. There's nothing more that we can do right now. So there's also misinformation or lack of communication between pharmacies and insurers. Right. I mean, to the devil's advocate is that at the corporate level, they're being told like, this is what you're going to do. And they don't have the staff because they're dealing with all the other things that are happening in pharmacy, uh, you know, worker shortages, worker sickness, difficulty recruiting people, trying to add people while people are leaving and all those things are happening. So implementing new programs, which typically takes a lot of time and troubleshooting, they're having to do that on the fly as well. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think it's challenging, right? I think from a top-down level, you hear that these things have to be rolled out very quickly. So the first thing is that we need to get, whether it's product out, we need to, we need to get some sort of message out. And I think unfortunately with that is that you don't or you cannot anticipate every single problem that may arise. So yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I think what we heard, you know, we hear on the on the um, biweekly provider call, um, you know, they talked about about the Blue Cross reimbursement. Very quickly, people thought, you know, does this mean I have to send a prescription into the pharmacy? Uh, you know, and my first thought here is, well, wow, geez, what if what if all these pharmacies start getting eight? Because now, according to this reimbursement, you can get eight per person per month. So now, if you were to send a thing in with like you know eight refills or you know four two packs or whatever it is. I think it's going to be challenging, right? So I think the communication strategy needs to anticipate those challenges, say the different options that you could do. Um, because if you're working in a community pharmacy and you all of a sudden you receive these, you know, receive these prescriptions and you say, I don't even have any, right? So we're talking about antiviral and monoclonal antibody supply. And now we're saying, well, I'm going to send it over to whatever community pharmacy it is. And we have nothing on the shelf. Now that, that unfortunately causes a cascade of events, right? So it causes them to call back the provider or to call the patient, the patient comes in, patient gets frustrated, and it really creates a whole, a whole unfortunate, um, you know, wild goose chase, I guess, of trying to find the supply for that person, really trying to take care of that person, which is really the end goal. So I think it, we really have to anticipate those challenges and continue to drive that message home that there are different options. It may not be sending a prescription. It may not be doing it here. Maybe it's online. You know, maybe you can see uh, an online distributor that you could do it and then submit it electronically. I think we have to try to make it as easy as possible um, and, and kind of move forward with that. And I think right. that, you know, health equity, I think, is another big thing that we had on our list here that your, your situation, Anisha, about the person who put the four tests down and was able to buy them. Right. Right. Had a credit card, had that. I think yep. about the person who hears on TikTok that you can go get these tests and finds a pharmacy with tests online or not puts the test on the counter and they're told, and they, let's say they have Medicaid, which is supposed to cover at zero copay or, or commercial insurance that pays at zero copay, but the process isn't set up at that nearest pharmacy to them, you know, accessible, visible healthcare providers. And they say, I can't pay for this right now. That's a huge, that's a huge, so it's great that they're reimbursing. Chris, you're right. We can't anticipate all these other things. We do have systems already set up to reimburse for vaccines, right? I think Anisha or Chris, you were telling me that Somebody comes to the pharmacy, they get a COVID vaccine. There's a code you put in and they get, they don't need insurance. Is that right? That's correct. You know, we, we need a solution. We need sort of a standing solution. And again, those, those JAMA authors say we need a standing solution. We need those digital tools. We need call centers. And we need all that sort of to be flipped on when the next thing that happens, if pharmacies are going to be involved in sort of the, in, in the next pandemic, right? Where there's going to be testing, there's probably going to be masking or some kind of, you know, we had um, hand sanitizer in the beginning. There'll be some kinds of all of those non-pharmaceutical 
then pharmaceutical, and then perhaps vaccine interventions that we can do well, but we can't do it without staff. We can't do it without protecting our staff. And we can't do it without making those interactions as simple as possible, augmented by mass testing, mass vaccination, and mail mail order you know, delivery of, of those interventions. I think you're right. You have to find a template that works and replicate it. And I think you know, when we were searching around the supply about the antivirals a few weeks ago, I remember, I forget which one of you actually said it, but I think it was like what one third of the claims were not going through, but then they finally figured out how to use the appropriate code. And it was similar to obviously the vaccination process. So I think whatever information, that's the great thing about social media or about just communication is that we can share those things in real time. Um, but unfortunately it's been lagging behind of what we you know, obviously hope for. I think that it's, I really feel for the people that don't have immediate access to the things that the rest of us privileged people do. Unfortunate. And hopefully we come up with a better solution in the next couple of weeks for all of this. But talking about vaccines, move some data on the COVID vaccine. So right now, kids that are aged 5 to 11 in the United States, 26.3% of them are vaccinated. Children aged 12 to 17, about 65% have received at least one dose. And specifically Rhode Island vaccine data, I think is tremendous. 91.5% of Rhode Islanders have received at least one dose. And 99% of those people are 18 and older. And 77.8% of Rhode Islanders are completely vaccinated. So I think that's really good. Dr. Bradford, can you tell us why getting a booster may protect you against Omicron or at the very least prevent hospitalization? Yeah. So the, again, it's COVID's always changing. And so for Omicron, people who are boosted, I mentioned this earlier, that when we look at the data that we have in states where you look at people who are boosted versus fully vaccinated, two, two or one doses versus unvaccinated, there are essentially zero deaths Mm -hmm. from those who are boosted or, you know, and out two weeks from it, there are very, very few hospitalizations. Again, it diverges greatly with unvaccinated, but it even diverges from those who are fully vaccinated, who are still 90 plus percent protected against hospitalization. We really see that difference between people who are boosted and people who aren't in terms of severity of illness, also duration of illness, also duration of viral load in the, in the upper respiratory tract. To be clear, we don't really know. You had a question about why, why is Omicron transmissible? We don't really know if you have viral particles, if they're infectious or not. Maybe they're less infectious because you've been boosted. So we're still trying to figure that out. Really importantly though, because Omicron is so transmissible, the key thing that people argue about getting vaccinated and your data on Rhode Island is like, well, why do we lead the nation in case counts? We don't have as many people boosted just like everywhere else in the country. We do know that there's waning immunity, particularly in older populations. Rhode Island has an older population, even though we protected almost all of them. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important that boosting doses does inhibit transmissions. We have looked at Israel and other countries have looked at, and in the U.S., that does being boosted protect you from infecting your household? And that's the case. I have COVID in my household and I'm currently still negative and asymptomatic. So, and I'm boosted and I'm 10 weeks out. Sort of the interesting thing about how these things go. Chris, can you tell us about some new developments with the Omicron specific vaccine? Yeah, this is interesting. This has actually come up very early in the pandemic where they started to talk about different variants and as the virus evolved, would they be able to do this? So, you know, the companies that make the mRNA vaccines have actually talked about how they could tweak the vaccine 
to do this. So this is going back over a year ago, they started even alluding to this. So um, yes, they've they've come out publicly talking about this. They've said in uh, some areas that it could take as few as three months to actually develop very, a variant specific, I'll call it variant specific rather than Omicron, but a variant specific um, vaccine or booster, whatever terminology you want to use of the day. Uh, but so they have started to do that. Um, it's anticipated that in the next, um, you know, month or so that we should have some data. Um, you know, will that be public at the moment? We don't know yet. We also know that, you know, there's been looking at a fourth dose vaccine as well. Um, I know you're going to allude to that anyway, but I'll, I'll go right into it. But we've seen that come up in different populations with immunocompromised patients. They've talked about, you know, the waning antibody levels as opposed to where T cell production actually helps support patients from getting severely ill as well. Um, if you look at the study that's out of Israel, um, they actually did look at the fourth dose in about 270 healthcare workers. So unfortunately, uh, we didn't see much of a difference. Um, but if you are someone that is looking at antibody levels, there was a slight increase there. So again, I think there's going to be a lot of, and Jeff alluded to this before, this is why antibody production doesn't tell us the whole story. So we have tests that look for qualitative and quantitative uh, values with antibodies, and some are specific to the nucleocapsid, some are specific to the spike protein. IgG can look at both. There's IgM. So there's, for the layperson, it's very difficult to interpret. So we'll have to see how that goes. And I mean, it's 270 uh, patients, so it's you know still a rather small study. So I think we need more robust uh, evidence generation to really look at that. And, and also retrospective data can also help as well. So I think it's something we'll have to look at to see if the Omicron variant uh, specific vaccine will make a difference, but also kind of looking forward, is this something that will have to evolve each year, kind of similar to how they do with the flu vaccine, where they say, okay, we're going to have to tweak it this year. Does that make sense? I think, unfortunately, because we probably didn't vaccinate enough people at the beginning, or at least in different areas um, of the world, not just the U.S., it's been able to mutate. And this is where we're kind of playing catch up, unfortunately. Right. And speaking, you know, you already fourth dose, should immunocompromised people wait to get their fourth shot till a new shot with Omicron coverage comes out? Or should they just go ahead and get a fourth shot to protect themselves now? I think, uh, again, we, as, as we've always talked about when we had our, our uh, town hall, you know, we're obviously not giving medical advice here, but I think you have to stay up to date on what the authorized uses are for the vaccines. I think that's first and foremost. Um, have that discussion with uh, your medical provider. But, you know, there's considerations where some people may be a transplant patient or some people may be getting a B cell depleting therapy where they historically are revaccinated every so many months because they're no longer making antibodies. So I think that's a discussion that you'd have to have uh, with that particular provider. Um, my feeling personally is that, you know, you have to look across at how immunization works based on that condition historically and, you know, do what's right for the patient. But again, um, you know, when, when you look at the authorized use, I think you have to really take that, you know, take that in line and, and make sure you're, um, you're following the guidance at the moment. But things will continue to evolve. I, I think you should never wait when something's available to you to mm -hmm. do it, especially if it's being, if, especially if it's being recommended by the CDC and different, you know, healthcare organizations. And, and the safety of the shots. I mean, I think, Correct. you know, we've given billions and millions of shots. This is the most safe vaccine we have not had a billion antivirals given. We haven't had a billion monoclonal antibodies given. I'd still say that we, we those have extraordinary safety and efficacy protocols, but you know, safety and efficacy evidence for their use. I, I mean that you know, even if we got it down to two months to have an Omicron, you know, Omicron we detected in November, we would just be giving it now on this downslide, right? And so, and again, how many can we? We're two years in this pandemic. 
And Anisha, you alluded to this. There's there's 8 billion people in, in the globe, and we've only vaccinated a tiny fraction of them. And so we can't vaccinate the world against COVID every year, period. Like we can't, much less create these, these specific variant vaccines. But the population that's at the highest risk, those who whose antibodies wane quicker than others, older folks, immunocompromised people, people who do have T or B cell immunity, you have a great point about, let's see how vaccines work in the, I used to work with the bone marrow transplant population. We helped write guidelines for our institution on vaccination of them. I don't know where COVID is in that, in that vaccination is in that realm, but I feel completely comfortable for my loved one who has zero immune system to get a COVID vaccine before and after their transplant because it is so safe. And when we very clearly we're talking about fourth doses, we're talking about fourth doses of the existing, honestly, standard vaccine that was developed a year ago. So with all these booster shots, do you think that it's sustainable for our healthcare systems and pharmacy to even give booster shots every four to five months, Chris? And I don't know. I think right now the the current strategy that we have is not doing so well. If you look at community pharmacies, they're really overworked. They're overburdened. I think we have to think of a workflow that's obviously better, uh, not only for pharmacists, but also pharmacy technicians. So I think that's first and foremost. Uh, we want to think of the well-being, making sure patients are treated effectively, uh, ensure safety is, you know, do no harm is our number one one, um, you know, really motto that we have in healthcare, really for pharmacists. But I think, you know, is it something that we can do a different process for allowing more time, protected time at those pharmacies for those services to being done? Reimbursement strategies is also important as well, especially in some of the in the independent pharmacies. During flu season, maybe it's something that could be worked in there. So they come in and Jeff and I have talked about this before, where a family comes in with their bubble, you do them all together and get the family out. I think right now we really need to need to see things change and doing every four to five months um, is going to be really challenging. It, it will be challenging to do that. Yeah. Like you said before, mixing the COVID vaccine and the flu shot, I don't know if that's going to happen and if it's even attainable to make it work, but hopefully someone comes up with some really good science in the next couple of months. I mean, I can, I can tell you the science that uh, Moderna, who makes one of the mRNA COVID vaccines is, you know, people still probably don't know that even the COVID vaccine, even if you're fully vaccinated in the two doses, it's still more effective than our standard egg-based, cell culture-based flu vaccines. I'm hopeful that an mRNA vaccine, again, it's a different virus we don't know. I'm hopeful that Moderna and other companies will make an mRNA vaccine against flu. And then you've just got mRNA for flu and you've got mRNA for COVID. Maybe you have mRNA for RSV. And we do do the technique Chris described and we protect families because that, you know, I say that you can't vaccinate 7 billion people in the world, but we do vaccinate them all against flu every year, you know, different seasons. And again, the problem is flu has a different season in the Northern and Southern hemisphere. So it's really, there's fewer people in the Southern hemisphere, but again, making combination vaccines is also very difficult too. So we have to sort of figure out all that safety and efficacy, but protecting people more against flu and, you know, the ultimate goal, right? If I was to invest in a company, I'm giving no investment advice, I cannot, but is a universal COVID vaccine, which our experts have recommended and, and is in development, universal flu vaccines, which I've talked about for, I think, 15 years. But we're finally getting to a point where those proteins that don't change, they're conserved. If you can target vaccines or mRNA to create antibodies against those conserved portions, now you're protecting against maybe not just COVID and its variants, but maybe other 
coronaviruses. You're not just protecting against flu, you're protecting against that massive pandemic influenza that will be out there. And so that's, I think, the holy grail right now is use whatever techniques we have. Remember, we still have over 100 vaccines in development around the world at various stages, uh, even though we only use a handful of them, but a universal respiratory virus vaccine, and we create mechanisms to vaccinate everybody, and then we can call on that sort of force of people to come out when there's an outbreak, not in flu season. We're not doing all this in September. We're doing, or, you know, uh, September through uh, March, we're doing it, able to do it year round. One thing that Dr. LeMay talked about a few weeks ago was pediatric immunizations and how, you know, in the community pharmacies, we can really help to supplement them and really catch up those that are unable to get vaccinated or unable to have an appointment. So as pharmacists, you know, I alluded to this before, you know, we are very well trained in terms of looking at vaccination schedules. Uh, so we could certainly, you know, take what ACIP gives us and really map that, you know, in real time and say, hey, you're coming in for a pneumococcal vaccine. Um, you know, have you had a COVID vaccine and kind of take that strategy moving forward, um, really not missing an opportunity to immunize uh, when that comes up. And, and also looking at the big picture, you know, if that person were to come in, you know, six months from now, you're going to go through the same process. So you can really consolidate and be more efficient in your process logistically within the pharmacy as well by doing it at the same time. Well, I think that's good in terms of integration with immunization information systems and things, you know, pharmacists, a whole episode probably could be devoted to the prescription drug monitoring program, but um, having, you know, a national and our, our national pharmacy organization support this, a national PDMP or a national immunization registry so that, you know, when I go to Pawtucket to get my universal COVID vaccine and with my family and I live in Massachusetts, they have all of our Massachusetts records and vice versa. It's really essential considering the part of the country we're in where you can cross state lines to do all kinds of things um, that we have sort of national registries uh, because that, you know, so then we are doubling up on doses and things like that, which I don't think happens very often. But I do know people who've gotten repeat COVID vaccines because they just, the overworked pharmacist or the overworked vaccination volunteer didn't write the dose on their card and they knew they got it, but they had to, you know, get it on a document, right? I mean, you've talked about the digital solution in, in Rhode Island. So I think that's interesting. Dr. Bradford, we had a very long discussion about this, but can you tell everyone what that JAMA article said about public health care workers. Yeah, so it, it was interesting. The, the, you know, Ezekiel Emanuel and colleagues said, you know, we need to have sort of, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier about, you know, we need a, we need to expand our public health workforce. We need to train the public health workforce, you know, reinvigorate it. It's been cut by double digit percentages in, in almost every single place in the country, more in others. Uh, but definitely not increased pre-pandemic. Pandemic has worn out the public health workforce. And so it's basically said, you know, gosh, there are so many other public health problems besides COVID testing and vaccinating and antivirals. They could also do things like, you know, um, you know provide contraception or nicotine replacement therapy or give other vaccines and pediatric vaccines. And I'm literally screaming at my computer going, that's literally what we do as pharmacy, as community pharmacists. We have pharmacy is public health. It's the whole point of this podcast is, you know, respectfully authors of that article, if you paid and, 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 uh, and reimbursed pharmacists for these public health services and made sure that there's a workforce in those locations that are easily found and visible and accessible and can do appointments and can do walk-ins 
um, to do all the things we talked about here for COVID, but for all kinds of other things. You know, in Rhode Island, we've expanded through the Rhode Island Pharmacists Association the ability to initiate medications and collaborative practice agreements. We can um, we can do testing. We can initiate testing both in those agreements and outside those agreements. We have these federal declarations that allow us to do pediatric vaccination. We can ensconce that into law too, so that we can do those kinds of things Chris talked about with family vaccination. Um, but it was just it was just sort of you know a, a point that pharmacists we really need to advocate. We heard that at the board of pharmacy meeting today. We need to advocate uh, not only for payment but for for workload um, change and transformation, honestly. And so that if community pharmacies or public health centers to do all the things for COVID and the next pandemic and uh, existing public health disparities, uh, we 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 need to we need to tell these folks to tell the government, hey, we're here. And we all need to be part of associations like the state association or the national association and say, this is our voice. Let's get policy change so that we're recognized and staffed and reimbursed. And we have a happier, healthier populace and a happier, healthier workforce. Why do you think that pharmacy lacks advocacy? I want Chris to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I think of how we're being advocated for that it's lacking is from recognition from other areas or other health professionals or you know, where I'll give you a classic example of how, you know, we were recognized to do, get, you know, receive reimbursement and also do administration for monoclonal antibodies. And then, you know, when the antivirals came out, it was actually our, you know, pharmacists were national organizations like ASHP, APHA, NASBA, and really pushing back and, and saying, you know, trying to understand why and, and how this could limit access and different things like that. So uh, some reason pharmacists are not recognized on a I don't want to say an even, even playing field, but, you know, being part of the healthcare team, I, I think we know that we're so impactful, you know, in healthcare and public health, especially when you look at the vaccine distribution and, um, you know, and rollout. So I, I don't know. Um, I'm really curious to hear what Jeff has to say about this, but I think it's, we are an uphill battle. Um, I think we are a strong, you know, profession where we have to advocate for ourselves and, and really those things are going to be, you know, really imperative for making sure that our profession is not only protected, but also advances in the current, in the, in the coming years. So I think we really have to um, continue to advocate for ourselves, like in anything else that we do in our lives. Yeah. I, I think I'll, I, I quote the, the board of pharmacy, you know, members and, 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 in my, side conversations with Anisha, who also listened to the, the meeting today is, um, you know, we've been giving away our services for free. You know, we wanted to do services. So, you know, I see this as both a, you know, a very small part-time community pharmacist and inpatient uh, pharmacy specialist and an academic to say, we train people like Anisha to do all these skills, we incorporate it into the curriculum. We have them demonstrated on rotations or in postgraduate training. And then, they're not recognized by their colleagues. Or I have colleagues who are providers who say, you know, I love pharmacy. I, I can't live without them, but I'm expanding my clinic and you can't get reimbursed for your service. So you can't be part of my ambulatory care clinic. Or insurers, uh, even in states where they say that pharmacists are providers, suffer the same reimbursement difficulties as existing providers where um, it becomes a billing problem. You know, this is what community pharmacy is doing with just their, their standard workload with, uh, with PBM, DAR fees and things like that, which are, are, again, hopefully going away or getting resolved. But uh, I see this as the frog in the boiling pot example where, you know, pharmacies were mainly independent and then they became less and less independent, more corporatized. And you went, okay, this is a good job. And then the pay went up and there was a shortage um, and we were, you know, when I graduated pharmacy school has offered all kinds of 
sign-on bonuses and cars and all kinds of insane things um, that Anisha is probably shaking her head like, what, you got offered a car and a bonus and travel to take the test in California? Like, yeah, I was offered all those things 20 years ago. But um, so I think until you have things taken away, do you not know, realize what you had? But we've had things sort of chipped away and chipped away. And this is not just pharmacy. It's all healthcare. It's not just healthcare. It's all of sort of corporate America. Um, and we're not trained, you know, Anisha, I wish, you know, she's getting trained in this rotation. I wish that we had sort of a, you're going to graduate. And this is part of your professional identity is to, is to advocate independently through an association, writing a letter. And so we're trying to sort of recreate or create systems where everyone feels that it's part of their identity. Um, it's something you have to do all the time, or, you know, at least on an annual basis, uh, but we have, if you're not trained in it and you don't know what to do when things are taken away from you, um, I think it's really difficult to say, this is what we need to do. Or if you don't have a powerful association, I mean, there's just more nurses and there's more doctors and they have more money and better lobbyists and better public recognition um, on the things that they do. Talked about, you know, the Board of Pharmacy meeting and talking about some of these, uh, you know, whether it's legislative changes or whatever. And I think it's really important that you know, I was talking with a few people about this, obviously, and, you know, I think it's really important that when we do have legislative actions that they do also include reimbursement, right? Because that's going to be sustainable for us long-term in our profession. So um, totally agree. Thanks, Jeff. So I just have one last question since we're talking about advocacy. What can we do as pharmacists to show society how important we are? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, be vocal, um, be present, also be positive. I think, um, you know, the last thing that you want to remember about a pharmacist is that they're overstressed. They're um, on the brink of making errors or whatever you want to call them. This goes for any health profession. So I think showing our value is really important. Um, and this goes back to the advocacy, um, you know, getting involved, making sure you could show and, and create change yourself. If you are struggling with something personally or professionally, um, be part of the solution. That's a great way to give your individual perspective and, and also, you know, bring your vested interest into making that solution happen. Um, I think, you know, showing the value, it, you do hear from people that really recognize and appreciate the efforts that we do on the front lines or day to day. Um, sometimes it's hard to see those and it's frustrating because we see more negative. Uh, but I think if you have an open mind and and also try to create things, you know, again, being patient, it's not going to change overnight, um, but being part of that solution and being involved, you know, whether it's in a state organization, it's whether it's part of, you know, within your employer, I think all of those things are really imperative. And if you truly want to be part of the solution, um, that's the only way to really, uh, you know, really help it continue. Yeah. I agree totally, Chris. I think the, the best example that I know you and I have done in, in, in advocating for expanded pharmacist practice that's reimbursed is, you know, the, the only reason that pharmacists and I was told the only reason in, the pharmacists in Oregon were able to be able to prescribe uh, hormonal contraception and get reimbursed by the state Medicaid is that there was a physician leading it, right? So you have to find the champions, they could be pharmacists or physicians, but champions who will unwaveringly support uh, you, your profession, your, your practice site, and, and say, this is, this is what's important. I've had chief medical officers of organizations in Rhode Island say, I don't care how much it costs. We're going to keep this pharmacist here because, and 
oh, and by the way, our patients do better. And oh, by the way, we save money. So they have the right idea in mind. Um, we just need to, so, so we need to demonstrate it to society. We need to change the impression of pharmacists, but we also need to latch onto that. And the Oregon example, you know, they just demonstrated in a study that pharmacists provided hormonal contraception saved $1.6 million in Medicaid. And so now when you're showing policymakers that you're saving money, we're not spending money, that, that has great impacts. So we have to make those steps and, and make sure that that data gets to the right people. Yeah, I think you have to recognize what someone has opposition to. You have to address their concerns. You have to provide information, you know, something that's objective, you know, that goes along with subjective opinion or goes along with anecdotal evidence. And, you know, I was talking to Dr. Jacobson before this and, you know, again, going back to uh, tobacco legislation and, you know, making sure that reimbursement is included, I think is number one and making sure you're partnering with people. So if your concern is, or uh, there's potential for opposition from another player, whether it's, you know, maybe a medical society or another organization, you know, working with them, trying to explain what you're really trying to accomplish and how can you work together to do that? So sometimes when you just put out a bill, you put out some sort of initiative, we're not bringing people together. And then that also, you know, creates disconnect and really people will be adversarial and we want them to be collaborative. Thank you guys both for your answers. I think we're going to end here for the regimen today. Thank you so much, Chris, for being a part of our podcast. We loved you on the show and you should come back another time. Be happy to do so. I was with Jeff for 58 episodes or something like that. So happy to join again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to the regimen, everyone.